They'd been pro prospering and growing in number, and the Pharaoh of the land had changed. And what happens in changes, they, they don't remember what the covenants were or how they had that relationship with Joseph. And this Pharaoh was getting a little bit threatened by the Israelite nation. He was getting threatened by the fact that they were increasing in number. He was getting threatened by their businesses. And so what he did is he tried to stop them in their crafts. They were his slaves. And he made them work hard. And he made them work even harder. And um, he started to feed them less. And he thought, if I feed them less, they won't prosper. These guys won't be able to go home and make babies. That was his plan. And yet, actually, as he worked them harder, they still continued to prosper. And so he eventually got to the point where he, th he thought, I need to stop these young males from um, growing up and taking over Egypt. So he decided to kill every firstborn male in the Israel race. Um, just in case these guys might rise up to, to beat him. And so Moses' parents, Jochebed and Amram, they had a baby and they managed to hide this baby, Moses, they managed to hide him for three whole months. And then we're told that he actually got to the point where they could hide him no more. And so they got a Moses basket or a papyrus basket, is what we're told. And they put pitch and tar on it to waterproof him. And as they hid him on the river Nile, in the reeds, um, they were hoping that God was going to come through and rescue their child. And that's what happens. We find out that's the Pharaoh's mother. That's him here in Egypt. Um, go back one minute. We find out that actually they put him in this basket. And along comes Pharaoh's daughter, and she heals this baby crying. And she sees this baby, and she has compassion on him. She feels sorry for him. And she decides to take and adopt this child that she finds in the, in the water. They know this child is a Hebrew child. And yet, she feels this love for him. She decides to adopt him. And... Um, she gets a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby, which we actually find out is Moses' biological mother, Jochebed. Um, and until he's a little bit older, where he then gets to grow up in the palace. And, you know, this is an amazing story. Moses' story is phenomenal. This is a child who, whose future was almost definitely heading towards death. And God turns this child's future around with one act. Moses entered this basket as a slave. And he was drawn out of the water by the Egyptians. He was actually saved by the king of Egypt's daughter. The Egyptian king. He takes him into his palace. He goes from very little prospects to enjoying the finest foods, the finest surrounding and education that anyone could have. And we find that Moses grows up and sees the oppression that his people, he, he, he actually finds out that he is a Hebrew. He must have looked different. He must have known there was something different about him. And we don't find fully out how he knows this, but he knows the Hebrew people are his people. And he sees as he grows up the oppression that's going on towards his people. And so he sees one day a fellow uh, Hebrew being beaten badly by an Egyptian. And he 
gets angry and he loses it and he decides to kill this guy and he buries him. And he carries on with life until he sees two thieves fighting one day. And um, he asks them, he, he breaks them, he says, look guys, what are you fighting about? We're fellow Hebrews. And they said, what are you going to do about it, Moses? Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And he gets scared. He suddenly realizes that he's been found out. And he gets scared that he's going to get killed. And he gets so scared that he leaves and he runs away. And he leaves this great privilege that he's in. He leaves this palace with all this education, with all this authority that he has, being a prince. And he runs away into the wilderness. He stood up for this Hebrew because he knew he was called to protect his people. And in turn, he had to give up all of his wealth, all of his privileges. And so he flees into the wilderness, it's the desert of Midian, to be precise. And it says he stayed there for 40 years. 40 years. He becomes a shepherd. And God uses this 40-year period as a place of preparation. A place of preparation where he calls him to do a phenomenal task. See, he's gone from a, a prince in the palace to the wilderness. But God has saved him for a purpose. God put him in that basket where he had clouds turn around this cloud's life from utter death to something quite extraordinary. And this calling that Moses received was going to scare him to the core. And God turns up in this burning bush that doesn't actually burn up, but it's burning. And he speaks to him. And he says this. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, to the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now we find out that Moses is hesitant to say the least. He's like, God, you've got the wrong guy, okay? Can't do this. But he can't keep arguing with God. And um, actually his brother Aaron is sent to help him as well. And um, so Moses does what God has commanded him to do. And he goes along to Pharaoh to tell him what God has spoken to him of. And he dazzles Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, with these amazing miracles. As he's given this rod to show off his power. But we find out that Pharaoh would not listen to God, the God of Moses. And actually, he retaliates by getting even harder on the Israelites. He makes them work even harder. So they're building bricks for him as they build his kingdom. And he takes away their straw. He says, right, I want you to build the same amount of bricks as before. But I'm taking away the straw. And um, Moses went. And each time he went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh turned them down. So Moses was asked to bring plagues 
on this nation. And there was amazing miracles that happened through these plagues. And the first plague was turning all of the water to blood. There were ten plagues to come. And actually, as these plagues came, and as the Egyptian pharaoh got retaliated against the Israelites, the Israelite nation started complaining and grumbling to Moses. Moses, what are you doing? You're making it worse. They were angry with Moses, even though they knew the oppression that they were under. And the thing about these plagues is some of the plagues were specifically sent to the Egyptian nation, like their cattle dying when actually the Israelite nation's cattle did not die. God wanted to prove that this wasn't just natural forces coming in to swing, but actually it was an intent. It was a targeted intent to make them understand that he is the king of kings. He is the God that they should follow. But this final plague that God asked Moses to bring was something that involved both the Egyptian and the Israelite nation. And this was because there was a problem with both nations, actually. There was a rebellion and a disobedience to God. And uh, we find out in verse 12, is, On that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animal. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. That's Exodus 12, 12. This was God's judgment on the idolatry of both nations. So even the nation of Israel, God's people, were worshipping other gods. And God's tenth plague was that he was going to kill the firstborn of every male household. And if they didn't want their child to die, then they were instructed to take a young male lamb without defect into their household. And after four days, it was to be killed, and the blood of that lamb was to be spread over the doorpost of the home, and the people were to feast on the lamb's roasted flesh with herbs and unleavened bread. And during the feast, the Israelites were told to be dressed and ready to journey at any moment. And on the night of the Passover, that's what it was called, the Passover, if the blood was spread on the doorpost, then it says the Lord passed over that household. Death would not plague that household. So in other words, God's judgment would fall on the Passover lamb and not the Israelite nation. And Moses and Aaron were the first to model this. So they sacrificed a lamb. They had to do this as well. And following the Passover, the Israelites would, were to exit Egypt. They were going to be liberated from slavery and delivered from death. And so Moses, after this encounter, it says there was great screams like there never was and never will be in Egypt on this night. It was a disastrous thing that had happened. And Moses went to Pharaoh, and this Pharaoh, who had been stubborn every single time and had refused, turned around this time and said, get out of here. Be gone. Take your people. Be gone. He lost his son. And so they all started leaving, and they trekked off out of this nation of Egypt leaving this land of slavery and oppression 
behind them. And as they're traveling in this mass crowd of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, they look behind and they suddenly see the Egyptian army has changed their minds. No, we don't let these people go. And they start chasing after them. And they, we all know the story. They come to the Red Sea. And again, the people start complaining to God and to Moses. Why have you led us out here to be killed? And God tells, uh, Moses tells them to trust God. To trust them. It's amazing after all of these plagues that have come on this nation, that they're still wondering, why? What are you doing, God? And Moses holds out his arms, and this mighty act, the Red Sea, parts. And the people of God walk through. They walk through. And this Egyptian army run through this Red Sea to follow them. And as they're coming out the other side, God closes the waters on the Egyptian army, on the enemy of the people. And they are beaten. They're crushed by the waters. And this nation of Israel, we find out, have come through the waters and they now travel to this promised land that God has spoken to them. This promised land flowing with milk and honey that's going to be prosperous. Which is another story in itself. Going to the desert and they take a little bit longer than they should do to get there. But I'm not going to go into that. I just want to look at this story again. Through the lens of Jesus. Just look at his life and see what are the similarities here. And you know, it doesn't take very long to understand there's a huge amount of similarities going on here with Jesus. We know that Jesus was born in a time, not with an Egyptian ruler, but he was born in a time when the nation of Israel was under Roman rule. They were being oppressed by that nation. And King Herod, the king at that time, he'd heard about this king of the Jews being born. And so he tried to find out where this king was. He couldn't find him. And realizing that he couldn't find him, he ordered all the boys under two in the Jewish race to be killed. Genocide going on again. At the same time, Jesus is born and murdered as king. And an angel speaks to Jesus' father, Joseph. And he tells him to go to Egypt where they will find safety. We find out that this baby is to be given the name Jesus and that he's God's, he's, he's God Almighty's one and only son. We read in John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. What we find out is Jesus was and always has been from the beginning of time. He was actually involved in the creation of the planets and the universe. And we find out that he's left this great seat of power and majesty to come and dwell on earth with his people. He gave up his divine power and authority to be born not into a magnificent royal family or a big palace somewhere, or to become king of the world or some nation. 
but he, he's born into a stable, into a little unnoticed town called Bethlehem. Jesus is described as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. But he's referred to as shepherd more than 43 times in the Bible. At the age of 30, Jesus was baptized and he immediately went in to the wilderness for 40 days. Not 40 years, 40 days. Where we're told that he met with Satan in the desert and he was tempted with power and significance, but he resisted the temptations. This was his preparation time in the wilderness. He came out of the wilderness and started his ministry on the back of this. And he went around doing amazing miracles. The first one that he did was actually turning, not turning water into blood, but at a wedding he turned water into wine. He healed the sick. He saw people rise from the dead. And still, many of his own people, the Jewish race, the religious leaders, they despised him and they rejected him. They were angry at the message that he brought to this nation. He knew that his father had called him to rescue his people. He knew what his mission was. But it wasn't to rescue them from this Roman Empire, as most people thought. It was actually from Satan, as we'll see. I just want to say, this is obviously a very religious word that I'm using here. So I want to just try and help us to understand what it means. What does this word see mean? We may have heard it quite a lot. And it has huge significance to try and understand what, what are we talking about here? What is God rescuing us from? And this Hebrew and Greek word, translated sin throughout the Bible, it revolves around mainly two larger concepts. The first is of transgression. It's to transgress. It means to step across or to go beyond a set boundary or limit. And the concept, if you think about it, on an athletic playing field, when the lines or the boundaries are there, which means the game's played if it's within the, the lines or the boundaries. But if you step out of that, you've committed a transgression. You've gone out of bounds. And limits are actually set to define the playing area here on the field. And the players are to stay within those limits of that area. But actually, most of the other words translated sin in the Bible involve a second concept. And if you can think about archery and an archery board, that's what it's called. The Hebrew word is pronounced pata, and it means to miss the mark, to miss the mark, which I would probably do most of the time. So what is the target? What are we aiming at that will help us to understand that we have missed the mark? Matthew 22 helps us to understand. Somebody asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. To love God 
and all others, no matter who they are at the time. Ah. I don't know about you, but I find there's something instinctive in looking out for self. So this putting God and others first is actually phenomenally dramatic. I know we're actually talking about crossing lines and boundaries, and you know my kids are experts at this. It's like they've been trained from birth to instinctively look for any boundary and cross it. Is that true? You tell them not to do something and they will do it. Even the very things they shouldn't be doing, somehow they manage to do. But if we're honest, we're no different, are we? In fact, it says this has been the case from the beginning of mankind. We heard last week from Matt about Adam and Eve. And God gave Adam and Eve one boundary. Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What did they do? They ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible tells us that there's a penalty to this missing the mark, to this sin. And he says the wages of sin is death. And there's a penalty that's required to deal with crossing these boundaries. There's a penalty with us looking after self, selfish ambition. But I want to say it's not all bad. Don't worry about this. This is good news. Jesus is the scribes and he stopped this out. We find out he was sacrificed on the cross where his blood was shed. The full anger and wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for all the sins that you and I have ever committed and ever will commit. And just as the Israelites had to trust that the angel of death would pass over their homes without dealing justly with the sin, we too are told that if we would just trust Jesus as our Passover lamb, we too will be saved. God will not deal with us as he should because his son has dealt with us. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And the Bible actually tells us that if we trust in the blood of Jesus, that God will walk us out of a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom that is dominated by hopelessness. He'll walk us out of a kingdom where we are slaves to selfishness and anger and bitterness. And he'll walk us into his kingdom. He'll walk us into his promised land. And he says this kingdom is dominated by light. It's dominated by selflessness. It's dominated by loving others and God. It's a kingdom where God is exalted by his people. And fortunately, God says that as we go from one kingdom into the next, he does a transforming work at the same time. Because inherently, we're always going to choose selfishness. God actually says this and he makes us a new creation. He gives us a new heart that wants to choose him. It wants to choose to love others. It wants to choose to stand up for the oppressed and the broken of this world. 
the traits that to follow as we choose Jesus, as we put our trust in him, are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. And you know, we're not only transformed, but we're adopted. We're adopted as sons and daughters by the King of Kings. And we're welcomed into God's family princes and princesses in the palace, in God's palace. It tells us that actually all of those authors of heaven are, are, are fingertips. And it's without the fear of being thrown out. God says that once we become his sons, we get to wear his robes. And nothing can separate us from him. You know, as the Israelites followed Moses through the Red Sea, traveling from slavery into freedom, we follow Jesus through water baptism. And baptism represents us dealing with our old life of slavery. And it represents us putting the shine for now in this new life with Jesus, this new land, this new promised land. I want to say this Christ's freedom that he brings. Have you ever seen the film Ants that came out? The whole point of this film was that these ants were trying to get to utopia. They were working really hard to get there. And this whole film is centered on this anthill. And loads of stuff happens. It's a great story. But at the very end of the film, the camera pans. And it starts to pan upwards from this anthill. From all the, the rooms and everything going on in there. And suddenly you see the anthill. And then beside this anthill, you see a dustbin. And there's food raining out of the dustbin. And actually for the ants, this utopia was the dustbin. In their little world, everything they were aiming for was this dustbin. And as the thing pans out, we see that's just a part this anthill is in. And we find that's just the edge of a park, which is just in a city, which is just in one nation, which is on planet Earth. And as we look at characters in the Old Testament, what God wants us to see is Moses' work was a significant work. He was like, you know, so many people's hero. But actually, it's a little bit like this anthill. Jesus has come. His work was an eternal work. It was far bigger and far more dramatic than what Moses did. He wants us to elevate, understand the place of Jesus. That he has conquered death for all time. And we can choose to put our trust in him. And have an eternal future that is safe. I want to say if you don't know God this morning and you want to find out more about him, about what it means to fully trust in this Passover lamb, then we'd love to chat with you this evening. So come and see me. And I also want to say if you haven't been baptized, we talked a little bit about baptism this morning, and you want to find out more about what this baptism is of dying to the old self and being raised into the new life.
a public declaration. Then we also look at baptisms. We have a baptismal service that's going to be coming up in March, and we look to see whether or not you're ready for that. Let me pray.